Hi, and welcome to another episode of Unordained, the podcast where we deconstruct deconstruction. And by that, I mean, as a former born-again Christian and current atheist, I um, am just really interested in hearing all from all kinds of people who have deconverted from uh, Christianity or any religion the same way I have. And so in each of these episodes, what we do is take a deep, dive into topics related to deconstruction and deconversion from religion. And my guest today is um, a former minister, the same as I am. And actually, we met in a group um, called the Clergy Project, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit during this episode. And since then, we've just... um, enjoyed wreaking havoc, I suppose, in some of those um, uh, Christian debate groups when we get uh, get on there. And so I'm really looking forward to having this chat with Carrie Walker. And so everybody help me welcome Carrie to Unordained. <laughs> I can say there you go. I can take my glasses off again now. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good, good. I had a really good day today, I must say. Um, yeah, nice and quiet around here today. Mm. Um, weather, weather here has been nice. So it's been yeah. enjoyable to be outside when you're outside. Yeah, it's really humid. It's really humid here on the East Coast, I must say. It's uh, not something that I'm used to after spending a dozen years on the prairies <laughs> in Saskatchewan, but um, yeah, it's been so humid here. You can almost feel it with, like on the floor and stuff. Everything feels damp. Yeah. So, yeah. So I kind of start off with talking about the weather with everybody, but listen, I'm going to tell you this, <laughs> see this, see this office behind me. Yep. Yeah. This is actually my office, um, but it is my old office from when I was a pastor oh interesting yeah, yeah. okay I, I I uh I'm actually I'm actually in my bedroom <laughs> and I got a green screen and uh because I set up in in a different room but we have family staying so I had to kind of shift everything into here and I was looking for a background and I was thinking yeah I like this I really like the way I decorated this office so here I am as an atheist and see these like see these purple books right here yeah yeah, that was, well, all of these books are all Christian books, but this was a Bible study that I was doing. You know, I see. Oh, up here, this is, this is my, uh, these are my or- ordination, mine yeah. and my husband's ordination. Oh, they, yeah. they were more generous with you. They never gave us one like that. <laughs> it was all supposed to be of the spirit of the heart. You know, there was, oh, no, there was nothing yeah. like that. Yeah. But then again, that was that was a big thing with witnesses is that there's no such thing as clergy. We're all equals. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Right? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. They they're, they're very open about the fact that they don't have a clergy um, there. There are there's no clergy and lady class in, in, in the faith. And it's like, OK, all right. So what is all this grooming that's been going on for years, you know, to take over various leadership responsibilities that, you yeah. know, what, what's all that about? If there's no leadership, if there's no clergy, it's like, no, we just a well-run organization needs spiritually (laughs) minded brothers to take care of certain needs, but you're not clergy, but they're not clergy. (laughs) It's like, you'll be the ones that are first called on to go up to the platform and to give speeches and sermons and, and talks and, you know, sometimes even public addresses where you'll travel to other congregations and give, and give these, these important sermons, but it's not (laughs) clergy. I did not know that. Yeah, that is so interesting. So, there I go again, saying interesting. Uh, what? So, how were the services? When you say witness, you mean Jehovah's Witness? Yes. Just in case anybody um, doesn't know that, but so how were how are the services? How are the services run then? Just by leaders. Okay, officially, there. I I am not going to play the language game that they've played for years. <laughs> I I have started using the terms that make sense to everyone else when I'm just trying to describe the elder of the hall, who is not clergy, who is in oh. charge of the hall, who is the presiding overseer, who is also taking care of the majority of the scheduling of everything and oh. giving all of the sermons. And, but he's not clergy. No, 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 no. Oh. 
Um, I'm not going to play that language game. There were leaders in the hall. There were leaders of every congregation. Some congregations, because of their sizes, were a little different. Um, I came from a small congregation, and the rules were a little different for how things ran in a small congregation. Um, a larger congregation of about 100 people or so would have, would have slightly different uh, structure to it. But there were still always certain key brothers in the hall who were in leadership positions. They just were never called clergy. And so it didn't matter how much you did or how active you were, you would never be referred to as, as a, a member of the clergy of the congregation. Just just an elder. And so, or, but each hall had like, there was one person who was basically had the final say in each hall. In a way, there's usually someone who they call now, I'm not sure if they call them the presiding overseer anymore, oh, Okay, but it, there is a certain title that was given um for the one brother who was in charge of the hall even though he may not technically have done anything different than other brothers um he was just the person the go-to one person that if you had an issue to address to the elder body that's typically how it was viewed is that they were all members of the elder body like everyone was was a collective unity in that regard but none of them were clergy so it it's a bit weird but yeah, we basically uh, have a very formalized, strict system of uh, sermons and information and Bible study, uh, pre-programmed weeks or months ahead of time. Oh, okay. And everyone is given this information ahead of time. Like on this week, we'll be dis- we'll be discussing this article in this magazine, um, and for like that's the Sunday meeting, and you'll have a you have this speaker here, who's going to deliver a talk on this subject uh, from a visiting congregation, um, and then on Tuesdays it's the book study, whatever the book that is, chapter, verse from here to here, and then Thursday it's the theocratic minister school, or at least this was when I was growing up. It was Sunday. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Different congregations have them on different days. But on Thursday, it was the Theocratic Minister School, where you were, if you are approved to do speak, uh, sermons, give uh, talks, like they don't call them sermons, they call them talks, even though they're sermons. Oh, okay. um, God talks. <laughs> yeah, it, God talks. If you're, you're slotted to be one of God's spokespeople, you will preach about some topic from the, uh, spe- sometimes it's a specific uh, section of, of biblical passage. And then we progress slowly through the Bible into from beginning to end uh, over the slowly over the course of about three years, you'll have a process like that. I think it took um, like you were expected to read the Bible on your own, usually once a year. Um, but if you didn't, then you would slowly progressively week after week, chapter after chapter, Uh, work your way probably every three years i think it took uh to do it officially um so every three years you've gone through the entire bible Hmm. cover to cover and And so were you were you basically born into that religion or is this that's not something that you converted to later no no i was born into it so i didn't i didn't understand the insanity of what was going on until it became abundantly clear later on in life yeah um and but it didn't stop my parents from my earliest memory telling me that I didn't need to plan for the future. I didn't need to pursue a career. I didn't need to do higher education. I was going to be a minister. Mm. And this was what they kept telling me. Uh, you are going to be an ordained minister. This is what you're going to do. And uh, then as time progressed and I hit my teens, I hadn't become baptized at the time. Um, which was a very important key step for witnesses um, because that's the thing that shows your willingness to become uh, like visibly recognized as a member of God's organization is that this, this, the baptism is a public declaration of your submission to God sort of thing. Okay. We we believe the same thing, but it was, we encourage people to be baptized like immediately after getting saved because it was we call it an external it was like an external demonstration of an inward change that's exactly still got the lingo (laughs) that's it's very similar to the way they described it um that if you have committed 
in your heart, if you had committed in your heart, you should commit publicly. That's sort of, that was sort of the way they would put it. Right. And so even, even when I was young, um, because a congregation was small, there was only about 20 people in it. Um, as long as you are a, uh, an, even an unbaptized publisher is what they call it. Someone who's regular in the field service, someone who's putting in hours every month, uh, regularly good hours. Um, you will be considered a, a person in good standing within the hall and put to work doing whatever, whether it's being an assistant to the ministerial servant, who's the guy who divvies up the map of the community into, into bite-sized chunks that everybody then gets distributed a card. And that's how they do a very controlled preaching work throughout the neighborhood is that the entire neighborhood is chopped up into these cards and with streets and certain number of houses per street or number of streets. And if you've got a, you go through one of those cards, you call on every location, um, attempting to place a watchtower and awake. Uh, if nobody's home, you mark it down as nobody home and you come back later. And you, you do that at least two or three times to wow. attempt to get somebody home. Wow. And if you, if you go through your entire um, territory and you don't get somebody home three times in a row, then you write down the address and it gets passed off to um, like telephone witnessing. Essentially wow. pe people, people will look up the phone number for that address using public resources like a Bowers book or a Mike's crisscross. These are sources that are usually held at a public library where even if you think your number is unlisted, it's not. Um, oh, yeah. So you, you go to the library, you find these books, you look up the number that's um, set for that address, and you make a phone call list of all of the do not homes. And then typically you would hand that list off to two people, um, pioneers who are uh, brothers and sisters in the hall who have committed to, at the time, it was 90 hours a month, committing 90 hours a month of preach work. So they would preach for 90 hours. I believe it's been reduced a bit since then. And uh, you would give it to them so that they could then, if they did their territory and they, they were done, they could then take your phone list and go through the process of calling these numbers and they could get more time done that way. Or you would give it to the elderly and infirmed uh, brothers in, who can't leave the house for whatever reason and you would give the telephone numbers to them to call so they could engage in the preaching work even if they just did it from their home yeah. and and if they go through this call list two or three times you then take the list and you hand it off to the mail writing team who would then write notes or, or mail to then send to these people um, then the reason it is so strict and so regimented yeah. is, be is because the idea that this is what the Great Commission is, is that you're supposed to go, therefore, and, and preach to all the peoples of all the nations, because then the end can come. Yeah. And so, you, so why, you do you think, why do you think the witnesses like why do you can I say JWs? Because that's what I've always said. Sure. Sure, sure. I used to even say the JWs, like at least they know what they're doing with witnessing. Like you guys really took it seriously where we would, I mean, we, we had the great commission too, you know, and we would send people out missionaries and that kind of stuff. But how, why do you think it's just the, the JW church that, that does that, like that really um, has such a focus on it? Is it, is it, do you think that, do they take hell more seriously or no, they don't believe in hell at all. Oh. Matter of matter of fact, they're, they are of the Aryan uh, persuasion. So they, they don't follow the Athanasius creed of Catholics whatsoever. They don't hold to the Trinity. They hold to, to what Arian, uh, Arian Isis said. He, they, he believed that Jesus wasn't of the Trinity. He, he believed he was more a guru or, or, or a special prophet the firstborn of all creation of God, but not God. And right. so, so that for whole first council of Nicaea, where they established the Athanasius creed and, and said, God is a Trinity is God is a Godhead. Yeah. That was to end the quarrel and debate between um, Athanasius and I think it's Arianasius, but I forget the name um, because that was the two main conflicting ideas that were going on at the time. Um, hmm. 
And witnesses basically say, no, 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 the Catholic Church got it wrong. Anyone who holds to the Athanasius Creed is wrong. The Arians got it right. You know, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is not God. He is he was the first thing God created, and then through him everything else was created. So he's God's master worker. And and they don't hold that the the Holy Spirit is a is a being either. They think that that's just a like an anthropomorphic name given to God's active force when it's acting on the earth. Okay. When, when, when you see God's power on earth acting, people assigned it agency and said, that's, that's a God in play there or the Holy spirit okay, in play. Yeah. yeah. So they, do, so do JWs consider themselves to be Christians then? No. Well, they, they don't, they, they worship, they don't worship Jesus, but they don't consider right. him God. So they're right. not worshiping God. They consider themselves servants of Christ. So they, in that aspect, they consider themselves uh, Christians. Like they hold that Jesus set the standard for how we behave um, or, or are to behave, in, including the preaching work. So he got baptized by John the baptizer before he began his earthly preaching work as a sign that he was ready to do his father's will, which is why they baptize in the same fashion. Okay. Um, when, you, when you're willing to show that you're ready to do that, you're following Jesus's example. And Jesus went from door to door. He went to the city squares. He went out in public and he preached essentially there. They say door to door. And so that, that's yeah. why, that's why we do it because Jesus was set as the example of how to act and how to behave. And yeah. so that's, they, they think they're following right. as literally closely to Jesus's footsteps as they can with the preaching work that they do. Right. Right. I, I, the little town that I grew up in with just, I mean, it is just a small town. Um, there was a Jehovah's witness church there. I, I don't know if it's still, uh, yeah, it is still there. Um, and so it's so strange that I spent so many years in a little town with, I don't know, and I don't, I don't know that much about other um, denominations, you know, and uh, so was it the same, it is the same with Jehovah's Witness, isn't it, that you, you wouldn't really associate with people who were not, you know, members yeah. of the hall. Bad association spoils useful habits, and so... Oh, yeah. The, and do not become unevenly yoked with unbelievers. Yes. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's a whole bunch of scriptures that are involved in basically saying the same thing. Yeah. You are to be a community unto yourself. You are, you're like God's kingdom is no part of this world. Yeah. You know, and, and you are to be no part of this world. So you, there's, you're supposed to be a separate community. Even if you have to interact with people, yeah. you are, you are not supposed to have undue interactions or too many interactions. Yeah. And but as a result, the consequence for leaving the organization is right. shunning. Right. Which which is essentially everyone in your community, everyone you know, all your yeah. social groups, your family, your friends, everyone is dead to you in a single day. And that is intense social coercion. And yeah. you have people that will put up with horrible abuses um uh, there were there were always stories of going around of of battered wives um who were staying with their husbands because the only allowable divorce was adultery so being abused wasn't considered reason enough to divorce if you it was even considered like a a concession i suppose is the right word that if a woman was in an abusive relationship she could separate but she was expected to stay married just and and stay celibate that sort of thing um because adultery was the only thing that you yeah. could get a divorce over yeah. and so you had battered women all the time always coming forward saying i can't leave i I, you know, I can't even leave because you know that won't stop the abuse and there's nothing anyone can do to help me wow and and if you left completely you'd have no one yeah you know like no support nothing and and this worked for spousal abuse this worked in instances of child abuse this worked in basically one of those weird things i studied for a long time uh game theory uh the articles of the balance of power like what does it mean for for there to be such a thing as a balance of power and there was a there was kind of a rule that i learned that anytime there's an imbalance of power, you have potential for abuse. So if two sides are perfectly equal, 
you can approach to each other as equals, but you you either have to keep in mind each other you each other are equals when there is a power imbalance, or there has to be a power balance to, to enforce it. Mm. And if you've got an incredibly regimented, isolated community in which all of the power is on one side, then children be obedient to your parents in all things. Wow, yeah. Which, which means if your parents are beating you, well, spare the rod, spoil the child, you're supposed yeah. to be obedient. So why don't you say and do what you're supposed to do so that beatings stop? The right. child abuse is actually put upon the child to prevent. Yeah. And, and the spousal abuse is put on the wife to prevent. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's a, such a perversion of the yeah. idea of how things are supposed to be. Because if you asked any witness, they would tell you, you know, well, no, God is love and we are represented. Yeah. We, yeah. we are representatives of him. And so we're supposed to put on the fruitages of the spirit. And the first fruitage is love, you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering. We're supposed to be all these things, but, you know, abuse is a private family affair. And that's between, yeah. you know, the headship principle and God and, and child abuse. Well, you know, my parents didn't necessarily hit me, but, you know, spoil the rod, you know. And so you've got this complacency where people know that it's going on. And they don't yeah. say anything. And in, and, and in, re- in religious circles too, you know, it, it's, it can get stuck there for so long because it's so, it's so insulated and so isolated from everybody else. Like you're saying. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you think, yeah, can, do you think it's, do you think it's better now than it was years ago or, or is no. it still. Um, with the internet and of course, the prohibitions are always there about the internet, about making sure that if you, your family has access to the internet, that it's available in like a single computer that's in a family room where everyone can watch what's going on. Of course, to prevent, you know, someone deciding to go look up some porn, that's what they're talking about. Um, But it's not really what they mean. They mean what happens if somebody sits down and wants to look up a Christopher Hitchens video Yeah. Or, or someone wants to look up what like Google, what are the debunked, jehovah's witnesses prophecies yeah yeah. you know what are the all the failed prophecies of jehovah's witnesses or what's the doctrine that doesn't work you know like what to say what to but what to refute if you're looking up counter apologetics that's like disfellowship worthy uh, uh, action is that right oh yeah Yeah. i um i did the same thing i had our, our our computer was in the living room next to the couch so everybody whoever was using it it was right there um but interestingly enough, I it never occurred to me to Google anything that was contrary to what I already believed because I believed it so firmly that I that I I, I already believed that whatever I would see would be wrong. So there's really no point in looking it up. Like there's there was no point in researching evolution because sure they can prove all kinds of stuff with evolution, but they are obviously wrong. So I, you know, I, I didn't well, even evolution know. is a trick of the devil. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember having a, a conversation with my daughter and, or my son, one of them, and they were saying, but, but mom, there's like, like carbon dating and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, well, but if, you know, if one thing is wrong, if they've made one mistake, then all of their theories are wrong. And so that obviously has to be what it is because evolution can't be real because we were made in a dirt in a garden from some dirt, <laughs> dirt and a yeah. rib. <laughs> and for me, it was, you know, well, they tried to carbon date these things and they got such vastly wrong answers yeah. that clearly carbon dating can't be trusted. And it's like, all right, fine. Let's just dismiss all of radiometric dating because right. you you maybe tried to use carbon dating when you should have used uranium lead dating right, or something right. like that. Yeah. And so it's like any any weakness, any flaw, any crack that can they can see, um, even if it has been 20, 30 years corrected in in modern scientific understanding, yeah. it's still something they'll latch onto. Yeah. As yeah. like, oh, look at that little wiggle room. You you can't you can't know what you're talking about because you could be wrong. It's yeah. like got 99% of it right. Maybe you're gonna find something that's wrong, yeah. but it's gonna yeah. be more science that finds it, not like religion that fixes it. Right. 
tell me about your tell me about how you came out of it then well a lot of it had to do I think I mentioned this before is like I didn't particularly hold my family to be particularly good representatives of the faith as I perceived it at the time there's a scripture that says people who hold to a, a form of godly devotion yeah. but prove false mm-hmm. to its power Divine. essentially, yeah, yeah. essentially mm-hmm. it's you have people that claim they're Christian who don't act like they're Christian yeah and it was easy for me then to dismiss my family uh, and their heavy-handed ways and very abusive ways as just being bad Christians. Oh, and so yeah. I, I, I gave that excuse. And then I looked into the religion myself and I tried to commit myself to it on my own terms and tried to be as dedicated and sincere as I could. And so I threw myself into it. You know, I, I did all the study. I, I, did, I learned the apologetics. I started memorizing like passages of the Bible. Um, for, from a ministry, because it was impressive to be able to quote the scripture from memory, don't oh, you know? Oh, for sure. You Absolutely. Know, it, 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 you it's so powerful. Word hidden in your heart. Yeah. And so I, I, I tried to do all that. <laughs> and I, I seriously gave it as much heartfelt, earnest searching as I could. And long story short, I came to the conclusion that there was no truth in it. And it took a while it probably took another five years after i came to that conclusion for me to actually articulate how i knew because it was mm-hmm. almost an instinct in the beginning it's like well, wait a minute this doesn't make sense but i don't know why and it's like that no that doesn't mesh there's something not right there but i don't know why and so i started sitting down witnesses are big on having the truth capital t truth and so the mm-hmm. first thing that i looked up what does truth mean? What does it mean? Well, if you use the word truth and I use the word truth, what is it that we're saying? Right. Like, there's, a, there's a common vernacular term that's used, and it means that what it is, whatever it is that you're referring to is in accord with reality. Yeah. That's, that's what it means. To right. believe something means that you believe that this thing is true or that true is in accord with reality. Right. Now, you can get into the philosophy of different um, theories of truth as to, well, is it, uh, if it's a coherent pattern, you know, then, then it's a coherentist model of truth, or is if it's a found, if you're making foundational claims, or, you know, the, the, the correspondence theory of truth, they're all really saying the same thing. What method are you using to confirm that whatever it is you're talking about mm-hmm. co- correlates to reality or is in accord with reality? And because reality is the final arbiter of truth, which is a very, very different idea from the one that it, or the religious idea. And I, I dove deep into that subject. I tried to figure out where it came up that you could have different worldviews based off of two different ideas of truth. And I went yeah. as far back as the arguments between um, Plato and Aristotle, Wow. Um, where Plato was going on about his ideals, like platonic ideals, this idea that the Plato's allegory of the cave, that we're just seeing shadows on the wall of the true reality, that the, the, the true ideal form is out there somewhere casting its shadow for us to see. And if we can just look and glean this information from on high, you know, from, from, and they, we will then truly understand what is true. And Aristotle turns around and says, no, forms are the way to go. You know, there may be an ideal form out there, but whatever form you've got gives you the capacity to figure out what you need to know about the subject that you're looking for. So you had Platonic ideals versus Aristotelian forms. And it went so far as the witnesses actually believed that we had Aristotelian souls is that you don't, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. So God didn't grant people a soul or Adam a soul in the Garden of Eden. Um, he made him a living soul. So there, there isn't this intangible thing that will live on after you die. Um, you are a soul. There, we don't have souls. And that's an Aristotelian idea. And so, I, like I said, I went deep to try to figure out where these worldviews came from. And it, it holds true all the way up to the Enlightenment when Descartes' I think, therefore I am came along, which essentially 
established, not intentionally, he screwed it up, but he established that the Aristotelian form was the way that you can actually get more information than attempting to constantly hold to an absolute standard of a platonic ideal. You didn't need absolute truth. You just needed, you could have 99% truth, you know, and you'd be, that'd be good enough. Right. And that was something that I figured out. And that sparked the enlightenment. I, I was very curious as to why the enlightenment was called the enlightenment and why it was so groundbreaking is because it basically ended a thousand year over 2000 year debate between Plato and Aristotle and, uh, and said, yep, yeah, Aristotle got it right. We can go from there. And so from that point forward, you were, you were no longer attempting to glean truth down from on high. You were attempting to build it from the ground up. From, from your own kajito, from the thing that cannot possibly be wrong. Mm. You cannot possibly be wrong about the fact of the existence of your own thoughts. Right. It can't, you, you can't doubt the existence of your thinking because by doubting you, you're using it and confirming its existence. Right. And so when you get an absolute like that, mm-hmm. it's rather groundbreaking for philosophy. Okay. But then, but then you're also... Uh, confined by the fact that I have absolute certainty that my mind exists, but I can't put that level of absolute certainty on literally anything else. Like you could be what's called a philosophical zombie. You could look like a person. You could act like a person. You could, you could maybe make me think that you're thinking like a person, but I would never be able to know with the same level of certainty that you are in fact thinking the way I'm thinking. Right. So there is a complete, permanent impasse between the two of us so on some level i know that i exist but i will never be able to have that kind of absolute certainty that you exist in the same way in the same knowledge so the only option i have is to assign degrees of certainty not absolute certainty absolute certainty is no longer a function of the conversation right right okay i it's um uh, that whole concept of truth is something I've been talking about for a few years, you know, because you hear everybody seems like everybody has their own truth. Truth is almost like lost its power. It's like, well, this is my truth and that might be your truth. And, but you know, there is a truth you know, to a lot of things, right? Yeah. That's a bit of a bastardization of, of what the enlightenment was trying to establish the mm-hmm. idea that there, if there isn't an absolute standard, then clearly truth is subjective to everybody. But those are, those are two opposite extremes where, where the, the usable part of the equation is in the middle, where those two ideas collide. The idea that, yes, I may not have absolute certainty about anything but my own mind, and you may not have absolute certainty about anything but your own mind, but you and I are both subject to reality. We are not its masters. And so truth is the part that gets to dictate what is true or our reality gets to dictate what is true. Because if you're not working in accord with reality, you are a raft in a river. You know, you're incapable of going upstream. Reality is going to get its way. And you can either go with the current and work in in harmony with the current, or you can sink. Those are your choices. Mm. So if if you're suicidal, just stop caring about reality and reality will take care of you. Mm. But But if you have even like a nested instinct to stay alive, you have to work in harmony with reality to stay alive. Mm. And, and that's why truth is the arbiter or reality is the arbiter of truth, not our personal opinions or anything. Right. Like that. And, uh, okay. So, and how did that lead you to the conclusion that there was no God? Because I was talking to someone today who said, you know, that they go by probabilities and they come up with the conclusion that there is a God. Well, that's probably because they have a misunderstanding of what probabilities are. In right. order to include something as a probability, you have to you have to consider things like explanatory power and what constitutes a candidate explanation. Um, if you, for uh, the the phrasing I've heard before is, when you hear hooves, think horses, not unicorns. Oh, so yeah, if, if you yeah. if you're attempting to understand what's the sound of hooves that I hear, horses can be included as a candidate explanation. Unicorns cannot, because unicorns haven't been shown first to be a possible 
explanation. <laughs> yeah, they're, right. they're, therefore, they can't be included as a possible, like as, as a probable explanation. And that's the same thing that happens with people with the, well, probably God exists. It's like, wait a minute. At what point did you ever establish that God could be a possible answer? Because you would have to show some real world correlate that that's right. possible. I mean, if you want to show that horses can make horse sounds, if you want to show that horses could, there's nothing illogical or contradictory about a horse's having horns, nothing. Right. Um, and so you've got horse with a horn, uh, likes virgins, uh, magical farts, you know, that sort of thing. Well, there, that's when you start to break the conversation down. It's like, well, wait a minute. Where did you get that information? How did you establish that that's a thing? Where did you establish that magic is a thing? Because that's the identity of unicorn. It's not single horned horse. It's single horned horse that's magical. So you have to then establish that magic is a thing before you could then include the possibility that magic horses are a thing to then explain the sound of hooves that you hear. And people don't do that with God. They, they presume, they, they, they start with the assumption that, yeah. that God is one of the probable answers. Yeah, they, they have been raised to think that God is the, the, you should start with God and work your way down. Gleaning truth from on high in a platonic form that is God. The ultimate platonic form that is right, God. Right. Um, and so people have to, you literally need to stop thinking the way you're thinking. You have to stop Mm -hmm. thinking pre-enlightenment philosophy and start thinking post-enlightenment philosophy and build a worldview from the ground up, which is not, it's not easy. It's hard. And it can be difficult to feel untethered. And even, even Nietzsche at one point thought that it would be virtually impossible for us to do this because we had been so embedded with the idea um, that God was necessary for the morality that we'd all been taught from the ground up, that we would bathe in the blood you know, of our, of any attempt to, to deal with a world where God didn't exist because we did, we don't teach people humanism. We don't teach kids humanism. We don't teach them post enlightenment philosophy. We don't teach them any of this stuff that requires genuine work to do. Yeah. Um, It's so much easier just to do a hand me down. Like, here you go. Here's your 10 commandments. Don't screw it up. Yeah. It's, It's but, all it's already there for it's prepackaged and yeah. according to your culture and uh, you don't have to give it a whole lot of thought. Yeah, it's Christmas. So we talk about baby Jesus. It's Easter. So we get chocolate and talk about Jesus. <laughs> well, you didn't. You were you were J.W. No, witnesses didn't do anything. There was no celebrations like that. The no birthdays either. Right. No birthdays. No. For the longest time, I literally didn't know how old it was. Uh, I didn't. I I didn't know how old my parents were. I didn't know how any of my siblings were because we didn't talk about. All so, I knew was one year older. Did you know when your birthday was? Eventually, because the, my teachers at the school started asking me, and I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Wow, wow! Are all of your family still in the church? No, uh, out. I my family's a bit extended. Uh, my mother first had my older sister from her first marriage and myself, um, and then they separated uh, because she wanted to become more involved with Jehovah's Witnesses, and my father did not, and he rightly so found the entire idea of what was going on in organizations to be repulsive, and he was dead on, and so they went their separate ways, and she married um, a man who had five kids of his own. And they had one more when they got married. So there were for a while, seven to eight kids in the house. And uh, I was the second youngest until my baby brother came along um, when I was five or six. And yeah, that was, that was my world. It was basically a bunch of us versus the parents. Yeah. And the, I assume, I assume you were shunned then when you, when you left. Well, the way I left was actually a bit fortuitous for me, because as busy and as active as I was, I developed a very serious health problem and uh, a problem with my spine to the point where even walking became a problem. Um, So I wasn't able to get up and go to the meetings. I wasn't able to go out in field service anymore. The brothers and sisters used to come by all the time to cheer me up and keep in touch with me. Um, But 
when I couldn't walk, I couldn't walk. It was, there was nothing that could be done. I even tried to go a few times. I would try to make a special effort to go to the uh, Passover, um, which is the big thing every year. Mm-hmm. Um, every, everybody and, and their monkey tries to go there and it's, but no, even then, eventually that was too much. I couldn't do that. And mm-hmm. so because I had a legitimate health reason why I wasn't going, um, I just sort of, I guess, got out of the habit of going. And mm-hmm. I, and then once I was out of the habit of going, I, yeah, I opened myself up to the opportunity to give it a good critical view because yes. I wasn't being inundated all the time. Yes, that, that is really important. That that's how I feel. We, I didn't really look too closely at stuff until I retired. Um, And I had, you know, time on my hands to actually, uh, you know. Are you hearing sirens? What? Are you hearing sirens? Okay, good. I I live just down the street from the fire department and the police station. (laughs) So they they pass my my place fairly quickly. Good if anything ever goes wrong, but not great for. Yeah, I'm 45 minutes from the nearest police state well i'm more than 45 minutes from nearest police station 45 minutes from a fire station so if my house burns i'm getting a new house <laughs> yeah pretty much yep i know i know the feeling so yeah i mean i'm i'm sure we both went something similar but i i would be lying if i said i didn't have my doubts even from day one like i said uh, this was truth that was handed down to me it wasn't something i figured out on my own and, I, and even as a kid, I saw inconsistencies in the stories. But then when I tried to, to make the truth my own, I learned the apologetics for why those inconsistencies weren't really inconsistencies, why, yeah, why was, the contradictions yeah, weren't ask. contradictions. Yeah. So, so you I mean, did have those answers. You, you did have those answers for some of the some of the things that you could come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had all the questions that every kid would ordinarily have which is why it's important for people to be indoctrinated before the age of seven. So that, that they, they just get used to the idea of these things and they don't have the rational mind to question it. Yeah. Because then as soon as that rational mind kicks in, you need to have somebody give you the apologetics as to how do you, how do you reconcile this, this inaccuracy or this contradiction, or it says this, and then it says that, how, which mm. one's true. Mm. And, and so once you learn the apologetics, it's like, oh, that's fine, whatever, you know, let, yeah. let those silly atheists claim the Bible's contradictory. I know how to counter the argument. Yeah. Yeah. And the self-righteousness of it was something that I recall feeling for a long time. Oh, um, oh yeah. I mean, if you believe you have some special truth, you know, a special, yeah. I believe I had a special spirit on the inside of me, for goodness sake, that mm-hmm. everybody else needed. I know? was being guided by God. Yeah. And, oh, I, yeah. And, and, and there were events that happened in my life that made me swear that God was deliberately, directly guiding me. Yes. Um, yeah. And we, we were told to share any instances like that with each other if we ever felt them. And so, of course, I had my miracle stories of things that had happened. And I said, well, this was clearly God acting through me. So, I mean, yeah. And give me an example of it, because I was I interviewed someone earlier today and they asked me the same thing. Like um, they were pointing at things in their life now that they see as God. And I said, like, I had 20 years of like, really, I, I thought they were very profound answers to prayer and even miracles and definitely proof that God was moving in my life. I mean, you know, I, um, I considered myself to be prophetic, right? So when I go preach somewhere and I would get a prophetic word or a word of knowledge for somebody, and I would be pretty freaking accurate. Sometimes I've known people's names and their occupation and, you know, forget the fact that, you know, (laughs) statistically I could be, you know, I, it was going to hit it sometimes anyway, but I looked at that as definitely this confirms that what I believe is real. So yeah, what I, kind of things happened to you that you would, that you would have, um, you were learned, you learned to interpret that way. Many of the same things I'm sure that you had. Um, I had prayers that I swore were answered almost immediately after having the prayer said. Yeah. Um, there were, there were things that were bothering me. Um, or things that I couldn't understand, things I couldn't reconcile. And literally the next meeting, we'd be talking about that subject. And it's yeah. like, 
And it's like, if oh, I had really man. stopped and thought about it, and I recognized that when you're given the schedule every week or every, <laughs> every month, and right. you do your cursory glance through it, yeah. you know, what happens if you've got a particularly good flash memory, and you're remembering the subject that's there, you just didn't recognize that you were memorizing it. Yeah, um, yeah. that sort of thing would happen. And but you, but, you, you, you were almost trained not to see things you know, the natural explanation for something. Quite the contrary. You you were told to, you were told to view contradiction or uh, coincidences. You were, you were told to view these things as signs of God. Yes. Yeah. I've said that a lot. Like here's a very good one. Yeah. This is the example that I most often tell people because it's the one I remember most vividly. Um, at our, our circuit assemblies, our district assemblies, witnesses have these huge conventions every year, several of them. I was an attendant at one of them, um, assigned to take care of a certain section of seating, uh, make sure it's cleaned up, make sure if anybody is always overcome by the heat. In some of these stadiums, it's not very well air conditioned in some of the places up north, for example. Um, and so if anyone's overcome with heat, you're to take them to first aid. You know, you're there to keep things orderly. And... I was working as an attendant at Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, and I was assigned to one of the upper stations. And sessions had ended, program was done, everybody was filing out and going home, and I was given my my broom and my uh, my dustpan, and I was told to sweep and clean up and everything, make sure everything was fine. Um, and I'm sitting there about halfway down the upper section. It's quite steep. These, these, the upper sections are quite vertically steep. Um, And the way I remembered it at the time was that I'm sitting there sweeping and then suddenly I blank. And the next thing that I realize I'm smiling at an elderly lady and holding her hand on the railing. Mm. And I don't have any conscious memory of it at the time. Mm. And, um, and, but she had, had basically been walking down and holding onto the railing and had lost her footing and stumbled once. And so her arms had slid down the railing. So she was now going vertical, like she was going this way right. and like holding on with her grip to stop herself from sliding. And right. she couldn't, she couldn't move her feet fast enough to get them underneath her to stand back up again. So she was just going to Superman down right. and, and her grip was failing. And so she was sliding and there was right. this look of horror on her face that I only recalled after this, I woke up from this and I was sitting there apparently holding her gripped her arm, to stop her hand from sliding and get smiling beautifully at her she said and i for all the world thought that this was god acting through me to save this woman yeah. um, because yeah. i didn't have any memory of doing it under my own volition and she said that i was smiling beautifully at her with an angelic face sort of thing and i was like okay i was primed t- to see all that sort of thing yeah as yeah miraculous. yeah and i shared the story proudly yes. with many people yeah and then a few years later, my wife and I are on a cruise. Um, one of the, I think it was the first cruise we ever took. Um, we were sitting at a dining table and the, the waiter and waitresses were bringing out water and glasses of wine and stuff like that. And one of the glasses was too close to the edge of the table. And my wife gestured and knocked it off without thinking I caught it as it was falling. And like, I basically, I wasn't even looking, I did it peripherally and I, that was one of the things I realized and put it back on the table. And the, our guests were shocked because they hadn't, they had never seen anything like that outside of a movie, um, like really fast catch, not mm-hmm. even looking at it, put it back on the table. Yeah, yeah. My wife says, yeah, he does stuff like that all the time. His reflexes are incredibly fast and he's got great peripheral vision. Oh yeah. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. that's true. I am trained in peripheral vision. You know, like I can tell when someone's looking at me, it's, without ever looking at them. And I, because I can, I can see, this is the extent of my field of vision. I can see both of my fingers moving at the same time. And I could, you know, so if something happens here, I can still tell you what's going on. Right, right. Um, even though I'm not looking at it. And um, so my, I have that peripheral vision and I'm, I had really fast reflexes as a kid. I don't know if I still have them anymore, but at the time my reflexes were really good. Um, And so she pieced it all together for me in that one saying, and I didn't realize it at the time. 
that it made far more sense that yeah. I had seen that woman sliding and had lashed out so fast that I hadn't even realized I had lashed out to catch yeah. her hand. Yeah. And it, it, it had happened like that peripheral instinct, poof, done before conscious thought, that sort of thing. The yeah. same before conscious thought that comes, if someone's throwing a punch, you catch their hand before it gets to your face, which yeah. is a thing, which is another thing I can do. Yeah. Um, not to brag, but <laughs> the, uh, it's something that I'm trained in. It's something I've had training to learn and and, right. and and practice in. So why did I think that this was anything special at the time? It was because I was primed to think yes. that it was something special at the time. Yeah. And but in hindsight, now I recognize this is that's just yeah you know, yeah just a coincidence. It's not, it's not even a coincidence. It's something I've done before. And, <laughs> yeah. And I never once assigned any special ability to yeah but i but i thought for certain god had worked through me for a long yeah. time yeah um when uh, we uh my husband and i ended up home this is a long story i'm gonna make really short <laughs> it's probably gonna lend, leave you with more questions than anything but we, we we were homeless once for two weeks and um we were staying at a hotel and uh in a different part of the country we had no home to go to no uh no jobs anything like that and um, the day that we had to check out, um, because we had no more money, uh, we got a call from the front desk saying someone was downstairs who wanted to talk to us. And we were in southern Alberta from the East Coast. We didn't know anybody. Um, so my husband went down and there was a woman there with an envelope. And she said, uh, my husband and I were praying and, this morning and he said to go take this out of the bank and and go find go find these uh go i think it was go uh find a truck with um east coast license license plates and give them this money and so she did she was there with five one hundred dollar bills and it basically gave us enough breathing room to for my husband to get a job that had um housing and so we ended up you know coming out on top after but for a long, long time, that was one of the miracle stories that we told. Um, my husband was actually on, on a TV program, a Canadian TV program called Good News, I think it was called. And that was one of the things he, he talked about, you know, that we were in this city where we knew nobody and somebody came up with $500 just the last minute that we needed it. And it's so it's so strange. It's not that we, it's not that we lied about that story over the years, but you just, it's just a perspective, right? Because afterwards, after we, we came out of it, we realized like, okay, so that was on a Monday, Sunday, we went to church uh, because we were good Christians and there was, you know, anywhere we were, if I was on vacation, I went to church. I, I've gone to church in St. Croix <laughs> in the Virgin Islands. So, um, so we went to church and of course, during the um, service, we spoke to people and then they invited us out for dinner, the pastor and some of the board members. And we shared our story of what was going on with us. And that lady was from that church. And so, you know, it's just, I mean, the story is the same. It's just how you choose to look at, or I guess not choose, but how we framed it at the time. We, we said for years that it was a miracle when really we had gone to have dinner with someone, told them that we were homeless. We were ministers at the time. So, of course, you, you know what church is like. They're going to reach out to, uh, to help as much as they can, right, on mm -hmm. their own. And so, yeah, it, that's that's a story that has a completely natural explanation that we looked at for a long time as absolute rock solid evidence that God existed and everything else that we believed was, was real. Yeah. You yeah. benefited from the goodwill of good people, not God will, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is one thing we, we, we believed in the uh, prosperity gospel. You, yeah, I don't think you guys, I don't think the JWs did, but no. um, part of the prosperity gospel, of course, is if you give, it'll be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Um, and so we were givers 
and and people around us were givers. So it's not that unusual if you found two, if you just met two ministers who were suddenly homeless, it wouldn't be that unusual to give them to give them money because we gave a lot of times knowing that God was going to give it back to us anyway. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about, let's talk about um, the clergy project. Cause I know we're gone, we're gone over and we're gone well over an hour. <laughs> I want you to come back again. All right. Okay. And I want to talk to you about maybe having somebody on who is maybe um, maybe a Christian and they could talk about their worldview. We'll see. I got some sure. in mind, I bet you know who it is already, but mm-hmm. um, tell me about the clergy project. Cause uh, I just, we cannot, we cannot stop without um, yeah, giving that a plug. Cause that's just oh, yeah. a wonderful well, organization. Yeah. We're, we're both members of it. Um, when I, uh, when I was a, applying to the clergy project, it was essentially because I think I had heard uh, Dan uh, Barker talking about it. Right. And something, the way he talked about it, indicated to me that it, w- it would be a valuable resource for me uh, to reconnect to the world in a mm-hmm. way, because I had felt disconnected from basically like all of reality my my old social structure was gone yeah i wasn't necessarily feeling as though i was part of the world because that was something that witnesses always talked about you know there's the organization and then there's the world and people yeah and like the the goats and and those things yeah the sheep and the goats yeah a a clear us versus them yes going, going on yeah and it's so toxic in every denomination though carrie too like so we both considered ourselves to be christians and but i I wouldn't have considered you christian oh i definitely wouldn't have considered you no that's that's the thing i mean (laughs) we would both call ourselves christians but we would never have called each other christian no so talk about us and them hey i mean yeah people people talk about the unity of the church it's like oh jesus no that's not the unity of your own church church. yeah unity of your own church maybe and even then that's not true because oh no i pastored a church and there's i can tell you there's no such thing as unity because i mean now i can see how everybody's god concept is in their own mind and so how can you can't have everybody believing the same thing you know so um, we would have more arguments over the music than anything else. <laughs> you can't, you yeah. can't even get two people to agree on the music in a church. So I had, I joined the clergy project um, after uh, I heard Dan talking and I recognized mm-hmm. that where I had, I had moved away from my ministry and I had moved away from the church and I was, I was beginning to formulate the idea that I, there was, there was a me to, to consider that I wasn't yeah. just, I wasn't just an ordained minister. I, I wasn't just a member of this church. I, like I wasn't a witness that that wasn't the full extent of my identity, but it had been the full extent of my identity. Yeah. I, I turned down jobs. I oh, turned yeah. down relationships. Yep. I've turned down careers. Yep, I didn't move places. I didn't go on trips, like all of this stuff. Yep. My entire life had been bent towards my ministry yes how do i rebuild from the ground up yeah yeah and so by joining the clergy project i didn't need to to get the the emotional support of how do i deal with the cognitive dissonance of being a non-believer while still preaching because technically i had gone through a phase of that um and i and 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 my workaround was that if i was going to give a talk if i was going to do anything of that sort i was going to always speak of love of the golden right. rule right because right. whereas the the first and greatest commandment was submission to god like whole submission to god your whole heart soul mind devoted to god and which of course means whatever god says you're supposed to do in complete submission including the the task of abraham of happily and willfully willing to kill your child if that's what god asks of you yeah. which is why witnesses will let their children die so yeah I mean, it's it's there's no 
there's no way to sugarcoat the fact that that first commandment of Jesus is the most vile thing that could ever be said because mm-hmm. it, it lets you excuse any, any yeah. action yeah. Um, as though you're doing God's will. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're killing a child or if you're killing an unbeliever, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And so I, I literally see no difference between the first command uh, or commandment of Jesus and uh, the first pillar of Islam. No difference to me whatsoever. What, um, what is that? Oh, submission yeah. oh, to God, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah, God right, says, right. do it. Right. So uh, like, that's why the Abrahamic faiths are all the Abrahamic faiths, because they're making the same commitment that yes. if, you tru- if you truly are committing to God in the realm of possibility of things for God to ask you to do is to kill your child your li- yep. or let your child die or sacrifice them or whatever. Right. Um, and because God says that doing his will, um, he will bestow his spirit upon you, which will make you feel love, joy, peace happiness the fruitage of the spirit will come upon you by doing god's will means one and one equals two in this scenario you can be asked to kill your child and feel happy doing it and that is the most perverse inhuman thing that i can that i can ever contemplate and and so that that weight hangs on me a great deal but even when i was a believer i said fine whatever i can't quite reconcile the idea that if I ever do have a child, I never had children. So I was never confronted with the option of having to let them die to please God. Right. Um, but I, I focused on the, the love and the mercy and the, you know, like do unto others. And then when I was deconverting, I looked up the origin of the golden rule and I realized it's just quoted in the Bible. It comes from much older sources. Right, right. And, and if you, and if you go and down the path of like a- anthropological studies, you recognize that our ancient African ancestors in the first tribes that we ever created were operating under the ethos of reciprocity. You know, what, what became the golden rule. It was the only way these social groups functioned is that everybody understood that everybody supported everyone else. Right. right. Um, that, and it's, it's hardwired into our right. cognition now, right. like with our empathy, our, 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 empathy, our empathy pumps, you know, um, right. where, where we can literally see someone hurting and feel that hurt ourselves. To the point where it registers in our brains, if when monitored, as though we are the ones that are suffering, and all we're doing is looking at it, right? And, and like it's it's hard coded into us this empathy, yeah. yeah. And so it's of no surprise that you're not going to be able to get away from make from recognizing the ethos of reciprocity in the human condition and incorporating it into your religion. Right. But it's just it's just a bit of a trick for them to say, well, that's only the second greatest commandment. The right. first one is clearly more important. The first. Yeah. yeah. And but I tried at the time I tried to go down the path of just preaching love and tolerance and all that stuff. But I was constantly being confronted with people who were like, no, no, no. You need to be more yes. more on about the submission yeah. thing. Right, right, right. And. So. I forget exactly how, what you asked, how you phrased what you asked. Uh, we were talking about the clergy project, um, and uh, I don't remember either. <laughs> but essentially, I, I came out of that way of thinking. Oh, you were saying that you, you, you weren't involved in the clergy project when you were still. Yeah, I had, I had stepped away from that because yeah, of, the, of, of the problems I was seeing um, when the, my health deteriorated it gave me the opportunity to put those questions to rest. Yeah. And of course I stumbled across Christopher Hitchens on YouTube and then the rest rest was history. history. (laughs) And it it was like, well, wait a minute. He's saying all the things that I'm saying, but he's, he's not ashamed to say them. Yeah. Or or I'm feeling shame and guilt thinking those thoughts. Yeah. He he is being so brazen and so bold and completely guilt-free in saying these things. Yeah. There needs to be some in, in, in analysis done as to whether or not he's right. And initially, right. I hated him, and I was going to prove Christopher Hitchens wrong. Okay. And and so I went crazy hardcore to look into whether or not there was any substantial truth to what Hitchens was saying. And lo and behold, I proved myself wrong. Wow! And, and that was that was sort of a backfire effect for me. Yeah. Um, and so. Yeah, well, I I say it all the time. I became an atheist, trying to be the best Christian I could be. So, um, 
you know, someone told me, was telling me about the Bible today. Um, I think she was just like a young person. I, I don't know, but um, she was, uh, she was inviting me to a Facebook group that is uh, all about evidence for, for God, basically the biblical God. But she was very careful to warn me that it's not a place for debate. <laughs> probably because the first thing I'd probably because the first thing I'd ask is how do you define evidence? Because you're gonna find yeah. that's gonna I trip people to, up a fair bit. I had to bite my tongue, you know, like, oh really a, a Christian group that doesn't want you to question anything? Who would have thought? <laughs> you mean you can only go there and agree with everything they say and if you say anything opposite they're gonna get mad? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah Interesting. I can see it. Yeah I can see it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I've really had I've really had a lot a um, lot of fun talking to you today, and I definitely want you to come back because also I want there was um, there were a few things that I wanted to uh, to talk about with you, and uh, um, we've only we've only touched on a couple of them. So I definitely want you to come back. I want to know I want to know more about philosophy and and apologetics and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we should, you'll do that. Hey. Oh yeah. Anytime. Just let me know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for agreeing to come on the show. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> anytime. That's an inside joke that anybody's yep. going to listen to after they're going to say, why is that so funny? <laughs> yep. There was a previous conversation. <laughs> anyway, Carrie, really great talking to you. And nice uh, talking with you I'll too. definitely be in touch with you probably like in about three seconds. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. See you later. Bye.